outside this Sunday morning and really be edified and challenged and encouraged. So if you sign up on our website for those, you can grab the red connect card for those. Um, and I think that's about all I've got. Joel, I'll let you to it. Thank you. Okay. <coughs> so I too, I'm going to say a quick prayer, just call upon the Lord for some help here as we open his word. So Lord, we come before you, ask that you will speak to us through your spirit, through your word, you know, apply your word, Lord, as only you can. We know that uh, you've written it for us, you've preserved it for us. We're thankful for the diligent work to translate it into a language that we can hear and understand. We pray that we would have open ears today to hear it. And may you speak through it and impact our lives that we may be changed for you, Lord, for your glory and for your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever been on a city street walking down the road, uh, perhaps approaching a busy intersection, only to glance over and you see a blind person with a, with a cane sort of moving along like this? And you're like, I'm in the middle of San Francisco. There's people everywhere. There's cars everywhere. And this person is amazingly able to stay on the sidewalk and not veer off and wander into the road. And then you start thinking, and do I need to maybe let this person know the intersection's coming up, you know, so they don't just keep wandering out into the, and, and by about the time you, those thoughts are going through your head, you see them just naturally come to a stop. And you're like, how did that how did that happen? How did this blind person amazingly figure out that they had arrived at an intersection that they needed to stop, uh, and they stopped? And, and it wasn't as if they had four or five other people and sensors, things, you know, to guide them and sound like radars, you know, LIDAR systems sounding, you know, you've got to pass it, you know, different things on different sides. They didn't have any of that. They were by themselves with, with a cane. Uh, and you think, man, that is incredible. And did you know they've actually found that, that those that have been born blind, sometimes they develop the ability to do echolocation? They can make little clicking sounds with their, with their mouth and then pick up the reflections in the room and actually be able to size up objects and sizes of the objects around them. Uh, that is incredible. That's something you only think, well, that sounds like an advanced piece of engineering apparatus or maybe something you'd read about in a bat or something, some cool, you know, ability for a bat. But this, these are human beings that have developed this capability. And studies have found that those that have been born blind many times develop and have a more capable auditory cortex within their brains uh, versus that of a sighted person, someone that has sight. In other words, the blind person uh, has a more nuanced sense of hearing. They can catch on to things a little easier. A person with good vision doesn't rely quite as heavily on the, the auditory uh, aspects, right? Because they've got the visual cortex that is also present and working well. And therefore, they can size up things without the need for any auditory information. Um, and the implication is that it's difficult to develop the keen hearing capability when one's vision is unimpaired, meaning when you have a good vision, many times that sight can get in the way of our ability to hear. Now, for us today, this is becoming a, a bigger deal. It's always been somewhat of a big deal, I think, for human beings, but even more so today, because if you look out on our world today, we are surrounded in a world of images. Uh, the 20th century was a great uh, turning point uh, from words to pictures, improved photography, improved printing capability, improved imaging devices, televisions, and the mass production of those things. I mean, I was driving just yesterday, and I was at a light, and we were making a turn, and I looked over, and I saw this vehicle had individual liquid crystal displays for every passenger, you know, south of the, of the driver's seat. Every passenger could watch their own individual content of whatever they want. I thought, man, that's cool. You know, this is cool stuff. And, and then you look at the, the bring yourself into the, into the driver's seat, and now you've got these huge liquid crystal screens they're putting on some of these fancy cars and all kinds of cool images that they, and things that we can, we can see. Um, 
And yet, you look at this and you say, but God has not chosen images to communicate to man. That has not been his predominant mechanism by which he communicates to man. But rather, he has chosen words. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the image. No. In the beginning, beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And we know that is Jesus himself. And we've all been taught that, that a picture is worth a thousand words. And yet, how many of us have read an incredible novel that then makes its way to the Hollywood you know, uh, stage and they then put the movie up there and we're like, it wasn't quite as good as the book. The book developed a whole world in my mind that, of places I had gone. And then I watched the movie and it wasn't that the movie was bad necessarily, but it was just, it was a little bit disappointing. It didn't quite, they, they gave me three hours of images in Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, and, and even multiple episodes and it's still paled. All those images. How many words does that add up to? Well, J.R.R. Tolkien, I don't know how many words are in his three novels. But anyway, you get the picture. The words paint a very deep and elaborate picture in our minds. And they can convey to us deep realities that many times images can't. Now, there are two stories in the scriptures that I'd like to look at this morning that I think highlight uh, the need to hear. The need to hone, hone our, our sense of hearing. To listen to his words clear words, if only we will close our eyes and let his words speak. Now, if we turn to the book of John chapter 4, we drop down into a fascinating narrative. Jesus recently had been in Judea. He was there baptizing folks and teaching, and his ministry was increasing. And the Pharisees were watching it, and they were counting numbers, and they said, wow, he's gaining just as many followers as John, and even maybe becoming even a bigger ministry. And the minute Jesus hears that the Pharisees are taking note of that, he says, it's time to head back, back up north towards hometown, my home region of Galilee. So he heads north towards Galilee. But when he does so, he takes sort of a, an unorthodox approach. He heads straight north, right into a region of Israel that's heavily populated by Samaritans. Most of the Orthodox Jews in that day would head over to the Jordan River, then travel north and hit the Sea of Galilee, and then if they wanted to come back over into Galilee, that isn't the route that Jesus chose. Now, these Samaritans were folks that were looked down upon for centuries by the Jews, right? And the history here goes all the way back to 2 Kings. Uh, if we were to go back at 2 Kings and we put ourselves and watch the fall of Israel, the northern ten tribes, uh, and we see what the king of Assyria did after he carried away the Israelites, what he did was this. In 2 Kings 17, 24, it says, The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, from Kutha, from Ava, and from Hamath, and Shepharvaim, and settled them in the cities of Samaria, in place of the sons of Israel, so they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. So these are foreigners that have brought, been brought in to sort of backfill the Israelites. And then we know that through subsequent generations, as the Israelites eventually began to move back as a result of the prophetic word of Jeremiah and others, and the Lord opened the door through Cyrus and other kings that told, told them, yeah, go back to your land. The Jews began intermixing with these folks in that region around Samaria. And to an Orthodox Jew, this created great consternation, right? Because that you shall not intermarry with these other folks around, right? And so they were, this really bugged them. And then they began to have doctrinal disagreements. The Samaritans thought you could only worship God on Mount Gerizim. And the Jews said, no, we worship God, you know, on Mount Moriah, right here where Solomon built the temple. And so they had a big debate about this and created problems. So then we go back to Jesus now with his disciples heading north right into an area with these, this, this populace of people, the Samaritans. And as they travel, eventually they're getting weary and tired. They want to take a break. They look out and they see a nice travel plaza, a nice travel stop on their interstate travels here. And they stop there at this well outside of a Samaritan town, right? And Jesus is thirsty and, and hungry, and same with the other guys. So the other guys decide to head on into town to get some food while Jesus hangs by the well, right? And you know the story here. A woman comes to the well with her water pot. She comes there. 
Uh, Jesus is weary and tired and begins to converse with this woman, and he begins to do so asking her some simple questions. The first question is just, could you give me a drink? Not a complicated thing. And then we pick up in 4 verse 9 where it says, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? John adds the note, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus sort of turns the tables here and gives her his incredible view of a little glimpse. You're not talking to just your everyday guy here. You're talking to one who can actually give you living water. Uh, And the dialogue continues, right? And the woman listens to his words intently. And she begins to realize there's something unique about this guy as he tells her things that she had done in the past. And she says, could this be the prophet that that Moses spoke about back in Deuteronomy? And that's, she begins to get inquisitive and think there's something different here, unique about this man. And after some further discussion, she goes to the the long-standing debate between her, her people, the Samaritans and the Jews about this proper location of where to worship God. And she states her hope for a future Messiah that one day she says he'll bring clarity on this debate. We pick it up in 425, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There are people out there that said Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. I beg to differ. This passage is about, he just basically says right to her, I am he. She looks forward to the Messiah. He says, I'm standing right here. I am he. And these words from Jesus ring deep, I believe, into the woman's soul. And her former inquisitiveness now is moved to outright jubilation. We know that because she sits her water pot down. She heads immediately back to town, gathers some of the men, and begins to tell them what has taken place. And she's excited. And in 439, we pick it up. Or actually, uh, 425. Well, actually, no, let's go to 439. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. This is what she said. He told me all the things I have done. He didn't really tell her everything she had ever done. He told her one thing she had done, but she's excited. And so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we, what we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, I want to pause right there because there's a key part of the story to catch here and a key question that needs to be answered. What is moving these people to believe? What is moving these people to believe? Obviously, the Spirit is at work, absolutely no doubt. But at a very fundamental level, they're believing in simple words. Jesus has done no miracle. He's raised no person from the dead in front of them. He's given no person blind right, blind sight right in front of them. It isn't that. Their first move in verse 39 Because they hear the words of the woman, and they believe. And then in verse 41, it says, many more believed because of his words. And then in verse 42, it goes on, and they clarify even further. It's not just because of what you said that we believe. Now we have heard with our own ears, and we believe. And so here we have these Samaritans, these outcasts in the eyes of the Jews. They're hearing And they're believing. The story continues in 443. It says, after the two days, as he stayed there in the town with them, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. 
So now Jesus finally heads north, arrives in this hometown region of Galilee. And John then draws into our minds, wants to refresh our memory about something that Jesus said about a prophet and his, his reception with his hometown. And namely, that a prophet has no honor in his home country. Now, you might be wondering, well, why is verse 44 even in the narrative? You could just strike 44 and say, well, after the two days, he went from, forth from there into Galilee and then jumped to 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Well, but it's there, right? And you say, well, what's this about? Why, why are we needing to be reminded about the reception of a prophet in his hometown? I think some of the answers will be clear when, you, when we ask a few more questions. What is a prophet? Think in your mind, say, what is a prophet? I'll give you one definition, very simple definition. One who speaks for God. How many times have a prophet come and says, Thus says the Lord, followed by their prophecy. Thus says the Lord. We'll look at one in a little bit where he does this. One who speaks for God, that is a prophet. And Jesus said a prophet has no honor in his own country. So given that a prophet speaks for God, how might a people not honor a prophet? I believe that one way it would happen is they would ignore the prophet's words. In fact, ignoring the prophet's words would be paramount to not honoring that prophet because his whole key role in office is to bring a word. If you then turn around and ignore, reject, or deny the word, you're dishonoring the prophet. Now that may lead to other things like let's stone this guy, let's chop his head off. That's also obviously greatly dishonoring, but it began. It began with the fact that you rejected the prophet's words. Uh, and so that is going to be key in this story. Let's see how this story may bear that reality out. Verse 45 says that Jesus came into Galilee, and get this, it says they received him. That doesn't sound like a dishonoring reception back into his home country. So why are we talking about him being dishonored? Well, look at 45. It says the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at the feast. They received him because of what they saw at the Passover feast recorded in John 2. Not necessarily what they heard. They're simply, oh, this is the guy that did that cool thing that I saw. Let's welcome him in. Not necessarily what he's speaking about or his words. The story continues. We'll come back to this in a second. 446. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, as Jesus moves into Galilee, he now ends up in a specific town, not just any town. It's a town where in the past he had done a great miraculous event where he turned water into wine, right? We also learn of this royal official who has made a trip from Capernaum, who's heard that Jesus was in Galilee. And by the way, this official, it's likely thought by the commentators that, that this is, is likely a Gentile official. That's why he's called a royal official. He's a Gentile official, possibly within Herod's court. Anyway, he's from Capernaum. He hears that Jesus is there. He makes the, the several days journey that it would have been over some difficult terrain coming up out of the Sea of Galilee, coming up into the region where Cana is. And he's there because he's heard about what Jesus has done. He's heard about the miracles and he, and he comes on behalf of his, his child. And the, the text tells us that this sickness for this boy wasn't just any old sickness, you know, a cold or maybe a light fever. He's at the point of death, God's word records. Meaning, the present tense, he is about to die. That's the situation for his son. He could die any day. Then you get this response from Jesus, and you might say, wow, 
That seemed a bit harsh here, did it not? Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply won't believe. Now, I believe this is all tied back to his statement about a prophet not receiving honor. Why? Because he's not actually talking here as much to the royal official as he is to you people. Did you catch the wording here? It's plural. He's not talking specifically only to the royal official. He's saying, you people here in Cana of Galilee, in a, in a location that doesn't receive prophets with honor into their hometown, guess what? I'm going to make a comment about your belief and what you're believing in. You're not believing in my words unless you see signs and wonders, dazzling things is what the Greek word is. You simply won't believe my words. And that's a dishonoring thing to a prophet. Uh, and so he points that out. But for the royal official, he still has this urgent need. He presses the Lord further. The royal official says to him, Sir, please, come down before my child dies. Come to my house. I need you. You're going to have to come and do something for my child. And Jesus simply looks up and says to him, Go. Your son lives. Now, if you're in the, in the seat of that man and you put yourself into his shoes, this is a great moment of test and trial. You've traveled these multi-day journeys to, to beckon Jesus to come to your house. You clearly want him to come to your house. You think he needs to do that to save your son. Your son, your child is back at home dying, likely to die any day. You've heard about what Jesus can do, the Jesus of Nazareth. And then you hear these four simple words, go, your son lives. You're faced with two options, right? Option one, stay, keep pressing him. No, 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 you don't get it. You've got to come with me. I've got to show you where to go. You've got to come beside his bed and you've got to do something and say something right there to heal him. But then you think, but that, if I do that, that's, that's ultimately I'm not believing his words. He told me my son lives. And if I act like I'm not believing, and if I'm genuinely not believing, could that, could that negate what has happened here? Option two, you simply take Jesus on his words. Believe in him. Head home with no outward visible sign whatsoever that your son is alive. He did not look and say, and go, and by the way, this should be the sign for you that the sun will go backwards five, you know, the shadow will go backwards. No, there's no sign given here to give the man any reassurance, only the words. And this man has to choose. Tough spot if your son's breathing his last breaths. Can you trust these words spoken by this man, Jesus? How does this official respond? This Gentile official, he responds this way. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. He believed. He believed the four simple words. Unlike the Galileans, you people not got to see signs and wonders to believe this man, much like the Samaritans in the town down the road to the south, they believe Jesus' words. Now he too believes what he hears, not what he saw. And his journey back had to be one of great anticipation. I can only imagine what he was thinking. I'm, I bet you he moved pretty quickly as he moved back towards his town and his house. It says in 451, as he was now going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. So the belief was just further, you know, imposed into this guy's life. His faith that began with just believing the words was now brought into sight as he actually got to now see his son upright walking back in good health, and he verified the time and said, bingo, that's when, that's when Jesus said those words. And as a result, his whole family and his whole household ends up believing. 
But why is it that we struggle at times in believing God's words? Are his words hard to understand? Go, your son lives. Not real hard. Perhaps the word of God is just so complicated that we need PhDs. We all have to go to seminary and be taught by theologians in order to understand it. I don't really think so. I think I can read it to my four-year-old. I can read it to my 11-year-old. I could read it to my teenagers, and they can understand it. It's understandable. And yet, we struggle at times because unlike the blind person, we tend to rely too heavily on our sight, what we see around us. Although the human eye can only see 0.0035% of the electromagnetic spectrum, but nonetheless, we must see <laughs> to believe. And that's the condition we find ourselves at times. And therefore, we have to work at times to get our eyes out of the equation. You know, I work for, for Dolby Laboratories. And we make, what I do is we make loudspeakers. And when you make loudspeakers, you face a pretty interesting uh, hurdle at times because you've got to find out if they sound good and if people will like the way they sound. And when you do this test and you want to try bringing in people to listen to speakers, there's a big obstacle you face. You know what it is? Their eyes. You'd say, well, what are you talking about? They walk into the room. They see our product. They then see the Porsche brand product. They then see the Yugo brand product. And before they've heard anything, they already have an idea of what they're going to hear. Which one will I like better? I think I know which one. That's got to be the Porsche one. And we go to great lengths. We spend tens of thousands of dollars building structures only to blind the eyes of the listeners. I read articles about double-blind, triple-blind tests of way to, ways to get people to focus on listening with their ears to the loudspeaker so we can find out really what they are after. Because if their sight gets in the way, it'll totally ruin the test. And you'll be skewed off in left field, building something that at the end of the day, the most people won't end up liking. Uh, it's the same reason why we, we put gold and bling on things is because it looks cool. It may just be a standard phone underneath, but it's got gold and it's got diamonds and therefore it's got to be better, right? So we look with our eyes and we have to do things to set our eyes to the side, right? Well, have you ever done, have you ever done a, a trust fall where you just do the old fall backwards thing? You've got to trust the people behind you to cat, that are going to be there to catch you, right? And, and maybe you've done this at a camp when you're growing up. You know, you, they, they all line up. You, you line up, you're told to look this way, and you just have to fall back and trust that they're going to be there to catch you. It's kind of like my wife who did competitive cheerleading, where they, they would throw her up in the air to do these incredible stunts. Now, when you're up in the air and you're trying to do these stunts, and I can't speak from firsthand experience here, but <laughs> you have to be able to focus on these tucks and moves that you're trying to do in the stunt, right? If you're worried about nailing the concrete floor, you probably won't do a very good job of pulling off the stunt above you. So you've got to trust that they will be there. Trusting in another is tough, right? If you can't see it all right before your eyes. Trusting in one's words is tough, but God has engineered this planet in our bodies such that we fundamentally cannot see him, and that in order to walk with him, and to grow in our faith with him, and to know him, and in order to enter into our rest, he requires faith. He requires us to not walk by sight, but by faith. Now, the second story I want to throw out today for us that highlights this also in a big way, is rewinding all the way back again into the period of the kings. We find a story a bit like the royal official earlier, one that again will push the envelope of what a person's willing to believe. If we rewind to 2 Kings 6 and 7, we find ourselves at a pivotal moment for the northern ten tribes of Israel. Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has come with his massive army, and he has surrounded Samaria, with this massive army, and the situation is dire for the citizens of Samaria, the Israelites. Listen what happens. 
624 of 2 Kings. Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all of his army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung, exciting stuff, was sold for five shekels of silver. And as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If Yahweh does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king said to her, What is the matter with you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Now when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And now he was passing by on the wall, and all the people looked up. And behold, underneath his clothes, he had sackcloth beneath it on his body. And then he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Israel here, surrounded by this army. Famine has gone on for months. Cannibalism has set in. And I don't know about you, but I think I'm going to say pass on the donkey's head and the dove's dung for today's lunch. I'm going to say, no, I don't really think I want to go there. But then you get to these two women and this story that you would almost say, do I have to read this? It's, I wish it wasn't in the Bible, almost. To say that these two women ended up in this situation, it's super hard to read. But this was a situation that resulted from Israel's continued sin and departure from the Lord. And he had told them, he had told them this very thing. This exact thing would happen. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses said, 28, 15, But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then in 53, Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. That is the situation they found themselves in because they had turned their back on their creator and their king. And they had walked in the ways of the nations around them. So the king of Israel here, Jehoram, is furious. He demands that Elisha, God's prophet, the one who speaks for God must be killed. Talk about not honoring a prophet in their home country. It's his fault. It's Yahweh's fault and it's his messenger's fault. So the king sends his own messenger to find Elisha. And we pick up in 633, while he, Elisha, was still talking with them, some of the elders of Israel, behold, the messenger from the king came down to him and said, Behold, this evil is from Yahweh. Why should I wait for Yahweh any longer? And then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel right here in the gate of Samaria. Now, the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning, that means a title, he had a great position, probably second only to the king, he answered the man of God, and he said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And then Elisha said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. So we find ourselves here, in another predicament, right? Think of this now. Put yourself into Samaria. There you are. The lives of your family are on the line. Your city has been besieged and surrounded for months. 
The economy is decimated. The food is so scarce that cannibalism, like we read about, has set in. The army outside is massive in number. You're not going to overtake this army on your own. You see no way out of this predicament. And then, one guy comes along and gives you one sentence. Tomorrow, barley and flour will be abundant and sold at the normal price. Right here in Samaria. You're left with two options. One, believe this sentence. Believe these words. Go back to your family and say, good news, guys. Tomorrow it's all over. Let's, go to the, let's lay our heads down and rest easy tonight and enter into the rest and the peace that comes from believing in God's word. Or option two, question, reject the simple and clear words and continue on with fear that would grip you, uncertainty about what will happen tomorrow. And that's what the royal officer chose to do. He made his decision. He questioned Elisha's words. Even if God made windows into heaven, how could these words be true? Unfortunately for him, his doubting and unbelief will leave him without peace. It will leave him holding on in fear, never to reap what is about to happen in less than 24 hours. We'll pick up in 7.3. Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, And they said to one another, why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, well, guess what? The famine is in the city and we will die there. And if we sit here, we'll die also. Now, therefore, come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, we will but die. Then they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses, and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was. And they fled for their life. Now, there's a moment there where the lepers started to debate, should we keep this stuff? What, hey, look, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. But then they came to a conclusion, well, no, we're doing the wrong thing. We got to go back and tell the city. So in verse 10, so they, the four lepers, came, and they called the, the gatekeepers of the city. They told them, saying, we have come to the camp of the Arameans, and behold, There was no one there, nor the voice of a man, only the horses tied, and the donkeys tied, and the tents just as they were. The gatekeepers then called and told it within the king's household. And the king arose in the night, and he said to his servants, I will tell you now what the Arameans are up to. I know what they've done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we will capture them alive and get into the city. Does that sound like a guy who's believing in the words that were spoken? Or is he trusting in his own eyesight and human logic here? Human logic is, oh yeah, this is a trap. The army is still there. I look, I still see... The, the horses, the tent, they're still there. They're just, it's a trap. That's the human logic. He's not wanting to, still not wanting to believe. Verse 13, fortunately, there just happens to be a lowly servant that steps in. And he says, please, let some men take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they will be, in any case, like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it, in the city, who have already perished, So let us send and see. There's no loss here if we just send some out. Even if they die, it's no different than all of us dying here in the city. So 14, they therefore took two chariots with horses and the king sent after the army of the Arameans saying, go and see. They went after them all the way to the Jordan. And behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. And then get this. 
a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel. Amazing. And two measures of barley for a shekel. Did somebody say that already? According to the word of the Lord. Yes, somebody did say that. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. Remember that guy, the officer? Second only to the king in charge of the gate. But the people trampled on him at the gate. And he died just as the man of God had said who spoke when the king came down to him. Now this is an incredible turn of events. Uh, who would have thought that with, within 24 hours, food and provision would be restored? And it's not unlike God to use the lowliest outcast. Four lepers are the ones that he says, I'll let them be the ones that get to discover the incredible handiwork of what I just did outside. All the while, the king, the mighty king and his royal officer, it's a trap. It's a trap. You can't believe these guys' words. It's not unlike God to do that. But I also have to admit that the royal officer's words in, a, in our human logic make complete sense. If you look out and see an army like that, and then you hear these words that 24 hours this is going to happen, guess what? Probably going to say, that sounds like foolish speech to me. I don't know if I can believe that. And when we as humans reject God's clear word and opt to trust more on our own limited sight, mark my words, consequences await when we stray away from our walk by faith and choose to walk by sight. For the royal officer, his eyes got in the way of him believing God's words through Elisha. Now yesterday, my mom sent me a text message. And it had this photo uh, in the message. And I looked at it. And you might say, well, that's, you know, a simple photo of a guy on, on a cold, icy-looking lake. But I knew where, what the location of this lake was. And I said, I thought to myself, if one would have told me that this event would, would occur next week, I would say, if windows were in heaven, only then would I be able to believe what I'm seeing in this photo. And that is because this, is a, this location is not what you would think. I, I put this photo up in front of my son, Brandon. He's fished a lot with me through the years. We go to Minnesota and we go around to different places to fish. And I said, Brandon, where do you think this photo was taken? His first guess makes perfect sense. Minnesota, of course, Dad. They're, they love ice fishing up there. I say, logical. Logical, yes. But no, not the right answer. He thought a second longer. Well, is that, maybe that's the lake out back behind Grandma and Popper's house up in Kansas City. Also very logical. It's been very cold lately. But no, that isn't the lake. And I said, I don't know if he's going to get this, right? So I had to give him a little clue. I said, you're going to have to dive a little deeper south. You're going to have to go a little deeper south. And he goes, is that the lake in Texas? And I was like, bingo. Now, to fully understand the magnitude of this, I've gone to Texas every year of my life. My grandmother you know, grew up in, on this land in the Great Depression. And, and I've gone there, and it's a place we go in the spring. It's warm in the spring, and it's downright hot in the summers. Maybe in the winter, maybe it's the upper, maybe they get a day of upper 30s. In the 40s, pretty normal. Maybe a dusting of snow, but not this year. Something pretty amazing happened. To actually be able to freeze a lake over, to go ice fishing in East Texas, at the lakes that I'm used to going to and as a kid dying of, you know, of heat, packing down the Mountain Dew one after the other. I mean, this is, this is like, are you kidding me? This has actually occurred. You, I'd have to see to believe this. But with God, he set up a different equation. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus said to Thomas in 20, 29 of John, Because you have seen, do you believe me? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And then right after he had healed a blind man and gave him sight, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may now see, and that those who see may become blind. 
But how many times must we see? We want to look at something to believe. There are many times we can't see what God is doing, but he's still at work. We don't hear his voice necessarily every day, although we should when we dive into his word. But does he hear our cry? Does he pay attention to our words? Is he there? Does he know what's going on? I say he does. He knows every sparrow that falls. He hears every cry from his people. So what gives us rest during these periods? For the Samaritan town, the outcasts of the Jewish society, they heard the woman's words and then Jesus' words. For the royal official whose son was deathly ill, the Gentile official, it took only four words from Christ. That was enough to believe and it resulted in life. For the citizens of Samaria surrounded by the Aramean army, one sentence from Elisha was enough to cut through their human imperceptions and gave them a glimpse at something truly amazing. And of course, God restored life the following day. Psalm 119, 129 says this, Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Get this. There is something that the human soul can observe, according to this psalm. And it's not in the visible electromagnetic spectrum of light. It's the testimonies of God that the soul can observe. There is something that gives us genuine light. Again, not the visible spectrum, but light that gives understanding to the simple. And, and the psalmist says it's the unfolding of his words that gives us this great light. That is the light source, and therefore we long for it each day. Now, there are many today, and me included, that look out and we observe unrighteousness increasing, lawlessness on the loose, uncertainty in the governments, possible corruption, economies that are reeling across our globe, unseen microorganisms that are wreaking havoc and creating panic, a push for more globalism on the rise, and a mysterious hidden agenda at work. What must you do when you face these sorts of situations? Where can you turn? I would urge us today to look into his word, to listen, close the eyes, turn off the news, and listen keenly to his voice, and simply believe what he has said. For in doing so, I believe we find an anchor for our souls. Because, get this, when we listen carefully into his word, we hear things like this. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Ah, I can rest no matter what nation rises or what nation falls or what leader rises in this country or what leader falls in this country or any other country. I can rest because I've heard from his word and I can believe it. He's still sovereign. And when we listen into his word and close our eyes, we can hear words like this. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteousness under punishment for the day of judgment. I know the Lord knows how to help me and how to rescue me out of times of temptation. And he'll deal and judge with unrighteousness in the end. And when we listen, we hear things like, for me to die or to live as Christ and to die as gain, no matter what life or death, it's advantageous for me. I can rest in that. And then when we open our ears and close our eyes and listen to the voice of our master, he says this. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
Jesus will come back for me. He's gone to prepare a place for each and every one of us. If you have never chosen to believe in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, hear these simple words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Don't wait. Today is the day. And if you've walked with the Lord for years, and you in and out for decades, you've searched and sought him, I hope you find your souls thirsting for his word, listening to it every day. And I'll read this to you as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Can, can a believer know that right now today you have everlasting life? Does that not give you peace to trust in that simple word? I hope it does. Lord, we come before you today knowing that we are people that are so easily walked astray by the sin that easily entangles us. Our eyes cloud our vision at times. We look up and we see wars. We hear of rumors of wars. We see problems in government. We see things around us. We hear of diseases. Lord, may we just simply close our eyes, open our ears, listen to your words. And may your words as we do so, may you then open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we may see the riches of your glory and the riches of your grace that you've bestowed upon us through the work of your son, Jesus. And may we have rest and find that rest that only comes through believing in you and in your word. Thank you that you've made it and engineered this universe such that we need to close our eyes, turn to you, and listen and believe. May we be like the Samaritans. May we be like that royal official. May we be like the citizens of Samaria that rested that night, putting their trust in the words of your prophet Elisha. And may we rest in you, Lord. May you do this in our hearts, in our minds, and in our families, Lord. May you give us great peace, a peace that surpasses understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.